This morning's reading is from Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, uh, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship that, the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Um, My name is Fred. I'm part of the team here at Christ City. And uh, if you're a visitor with us this morning, welcome. We're so thankful that you have joined us. We are uh, early stages of uh, a study through a very interesting book, an Old Testament book called the book of Daniel. And uh, it has got some amazing stories and some confusing uh, apocalyptic prophecies. It's all here. And uh, we get to, to go through it because, not because we want to understand what happened long ago and kind of be esoteric about ancient strange names and musical instruments and so forth, but, but we believe because of the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit that God's Word, even written thousands of years ago, 2,500 years ago, it continues to speak to us today. And the book of Daniel, as I get to study this book and and think through what it means for us today, it has a very relevant word for us here in the 21st century living in Vancouver. 
So the verses that uh, Jonathan just read for us are really just setting the stage because this morning we're looking at all of chapter 3 and that was just the introduction. So we've got a lot to cover. So before we jump in, as usual, I really need you to pray with me. Would you do that please? Bow your heads and hearts. Father in heaven, we trust that your word is living and active and we ask that in your great mercy your spirit would be moving among us to teach and open eyes and strengthen faith and bring conviction and above all lord help us to see your glory in the face of jesus christ this morning that we might worship and serve him alone in his great name we pray amen well as i've said before and i need to say again because some of you weren't here before and this is something we need to hear again and again the 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 book of daniel is written to Jewish exiles living a thousand miles or more from their homeland, from the promised land. They're living in exile in Babylon. They're exiles in Babylon. And um, they're facing this challenge, the challenge of living faithfully in a foreign land. That's a big challenge. And that is our challenge. That's why this book is so relevant for us. Because we too are exiles and i'll explain that in a second that's the point of contact between us and this book that we are exiles who are trying to live faithfully in a foreign land now many of us probably most of us are not from a jewish background none of us are living in babylon or modern day iraq obviously but we are the bible teaches the new testament teaches that we are indeed if you're a follower of jesus christ You're an exile. You're a foreigner. You're a sojourner. This is a major theme in the New Testament. It's it's phrased a number of different ways, but it's a major theme. You see, through our relationship with Jesus Christ, we are no longer in the, the world, or sorry, we're no longer of the world. Correct that. We're no longer of the world, even though we continue to live in the world. You see, Philippians 3 says that we are now, through our faith in Jesus Christ, we are citizens of heaven. And that means that this world is not really our home. We're not really fully at home here. There's a sense in which we don't really fully belong. And so we, as God's people, are really looking for our true home. Our true home is in the coming age, in the new creation. Our true home is not here in this world. Here's how Hebrews 13, 14 puts it. The writer says, Here, in this world, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city. This is a Christian. A Christian is a person who is seeking the city that is to come in the new age, in the new creation. So here's what we need to know. If we are going to be faithful followers of Jesus, if we are going to be faithful followers of Jesus in this post-Christian age, that describes our culture very well. We live in a post-Christian culture. This is the perspective. This is why I'm making such a big deal about it. This is the perspective that we have to have if we're going to be faithful. We have to think of ourselves as exiles, as sojourners, as aliens. But... Now, this is an important but. 
That does not mean we do not care about our world. Just because we're exiles, that does not mean that we do not care very much about our world. The Lord does not call us to withdraw from our culture. The Lord does not call Christians to isolate themselves in some little Christian subculture and try to protect themselves from the world in some way. That is not what we're called to. In fact, the word that God gave to the Jewish exiles in Babylon over 2,500 years ago continues to speak a very relevant word to us in our contemporary context. Here's what I want to share with you. That word that God shared with the Jewish exiles living in Babylon, trying to be faithful in the foreign land, here's what he said to them in Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now this is the posture, this is the attitude, this is the mindset that we need if we are going to live as faithful exiles in a foreign post-Christian culture. We need to be a people who are committed, committed to ask the Lord to, to help us seek the welfare of the place where he has put us. We need to be active in this. We can't step back. We can't be passive. We can't check out. We can't withdraw. We need to seek the Lord so that we can seek the welfare of the place where he has put us. We must not retreat and we most certainly must not attack. This is a relevant word for us. We need to pray and ask the Lord that he would help us seek the well-being of our city in whatever vocation, whatever stage of life, whatever situation you find yourself in. That's the posture. If we're going to live faithfully in this foreign land we call a post-Christian culture. So as we look at Daniel 3 this morning with that kind of setting the stage for us, I want to look at this and I want to bring four things to your attention. If you're taking notes, here they are. The idol, the decision, the deliverer, and the decree. Let me give those to you again. The idol, the decision, the deliverer, and the decree. The idol begins in verses 1 to 12, the passage that Jonathan just read for us. Look at verse 1 with me. It says that King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So here's what happens. King Nebuchadnezzar makes this golden image, this idol. It's 90 feet high. This is impressive. 
and he sets it up. In fact, in this text, that's the big point, that Nebuchadnezzar set up this idol. Everybody worshiped Nebuchadnezzar's idol that he set up. It's set up. He set it up. The Lord is having a little bit of a laugh here. And then he calls everyone together from his kingdom. He calls everyone together for this official public dedication of the idol that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. It's an A-list event. Everybody who is anybody shows up to this event. I, I suspect that you didn't really have a choice. It says that the satraps came, whoever they are. The prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers and the justices and the magistrates and all the officials of all of the provinces. The red carpet is out. See, here what's going, here's what's going on. As I said a couple of weeks ago, Nebuchadnezzar is the big guy on the block. And, and this is a fairly new, uh, he's fair, it's a fairly new kingdom. And he is trying to consolidate power. And so he, because his, his kingdom is so vast, there's different peoples and tribes and tongues and cultures. And he wants to bring them together in order to consolidate power. And so he sets up this image. And what he's doing is he wants to secure the loyalty of his subjects. Everybody under his reign and rule, he wants to secure their loyalty by demanding that they pay homage, that they bow down, that they worship this symbol of his greatness and authority. That's what's going on here. Look at verses 4 and 5. It says, And the herald proclaimed, it's not a guy named Herald, his job is to proclaim things that the king wants. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, not invited, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, very big band, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But that's not all. In verse 6, the herald adds, And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So basically, it's a a simple choice. Bow or burn. That's the choice. It's very simple, black and white. Bow down or burn. Now to us, this kind of despotism may seem outrageous. But let me invite you to realize that that it isn't really that outrageous. This kind of thing is not isolated to ancient autocrats. This kind of thing, this very similar sorts of situations can be seen throughout history and even into the present day. So, for example, many 20th century dictators you know, required this kind of thing. Stalin, Hitler, Mao Zedong, Kim Il-sun, Kim Jong-il, they all required this kind of total allegiance under threat of death or imprisonment. Now there's a, a young lady in Christ City 
who just a few years ago actually went to North Korea. And she was brought to the Mansude Grand Monument in Pyongyang. And there's a 20-meter bronze statue of the supreme leaders there. And her official handler told her to bow down and honor the supreme leaders. Now she's a Christian, and she wouldn't bow down. And she said it got very awkward and very tense very quickly when they realized that she wasn't going to play ball with them. And so they kind of awkwardly whisked her away, put her in the car, and took her out of there. But let me tell you this. If she had been a North Korean, it probably would have cost her her life. At least it would have cost her a lifetime in prison. So don't think that this is some ancient thing. This is up to date. This is going on now. Here's the thing. Whether we are talking about pagan, polytheistic Babylon or atheistic communist North, or North Korea, the state often oversteps its boundaries. The state often oversteps its boundaries and demands more from its citizens than it has a right to demand. And whether it's setting up physical images or idols or perhaps it's pushing a a, a particular political, ideological, social agenda, states regularly pressure people who are under their power to fall into line or else. And this is true of political states and parties on the left as well as on the right. Now, although Romans 13.1 teaches very clearly that every person should be subject to the governing authorities, we as followers of Jesus Christ need to know where to draw the line when it comes to giving our ultimate allegiance. And I would suggest, in fact, that we need to resist the governing authorities whenever it demands of us what we owe to God alone. Let me repeat that. I suggest to you that we need to resist the governing authorities over us in 21st century Canada whenever they demand of believers, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, whenever they demand of us what we owe to God alone. Now, Daniel 3 doesn't give us the details. It doesn't tell us anything about how Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, how they refused to worship the golden image. But look at verses 8 and 12. Look at what we read here. It says, Certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. And here's what they said. There are certain Jews, they've gone to the king, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're they're naming names. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 
Now, here's what we know. Back in chapter 1, we saw that these guys, these men, are not the kind of people who go out of their way to make a fuss, to make a, a spectacle, to make a scene about how they are refusing to worship the golden image. That is not what these guys are doing. I, I don't know. We don't know. Perhaps I, I think maybe I could imagine them standing sort of in the back, off to the side, you know, quietly refusing to bow down to the image. We just don't know the details. But what we do know is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their unwillingness to worship the idol and bow down, it came to the king's attention because of the malice of the Chaldeans. Somebody did see, somebody did notice, somebody wrote down their names and took it immediately to the king. Now, I would suggest that the, these men, these Chaldeans, are just, they're just jealous. This is a political power play. I suspect that they were jealous of the fact that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were Jewish, there weren't even local boys, they had been put into places of power in the Babylonian government, and they were going to take care of things. And that brings us to the decision, my second point. Look at verses 13 to 15. Here's the king's response. Get ready. Then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready... When you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, it's well and good. It's given him a second chance. Maybe you guys weren't listening. Maybe you were playing on your cell phones. I'm going to give you a second chance. It's very magnanimous. Now let me just help us to clarify the picture a little bit. Babylon... Babylon is a polytheistic culture. It's not a monotheistic culture. It's a polytheistic culture. So Babylon has room in its toleration, its religious toleration. It has room for people to worship whatever gods they really want to. So the king is not demanding exclusive devotion to the idol. The king simply wants these men to make an outward show of their allegiance to him and his kingdom. The idol represents his glory, his kingdom, his power. And he wants these men to just make an outward show in front of everybody that they're on board, they're on side, they'll support whatever he's all about. If they would simply fall down and publicly worship the image, Nebuchadnezzar said, it's going to be okay. Everything's cool. It's good. No problems. You know, perhaps he even said something like, and you can go on worshiping the God of Israel in your hearts. It doesn't even matter to me if you really mean it. Maybe he used that kind of logic. But he means it because... In order to add some incentive, this is what the king says in verse 15. But, 
But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And then, as if to suggest the utter futility of their resistance, and perhaps I I think he said this, he asked this question with a bit of a smirk. He said, "And, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now let's bring it forward a little bit. We live in a, in a modern, secular, pluralistic culture. And on the, the terms of the agreement for living in a modern, secular, pluralistic culture, we believe that all people should be free to worship God. We believe in religious liberty. But, and this is where We need to be making some connections. But, as I said before, when the state overreaches its authority and begins to push social policies that pressure people to violate their conscience, I would suggest to you that there's bound to be a clash. There's bound to be a problem. There's bound to be an altercation somewhere coming in the culture. And I would suggest to you that, unfortunately, when that moment comes, and I believe it is coming, because we are seeing a, 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 an ideological zealotry, or zealotry, or whatever you want to call it, in our day, here's the problem. The state is often only too willing to use coercive force. If that day comes or not, I don't know. But if it comes, I hope that our response will be like these men. Look at verses 16 to 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, I love it, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now again, let me remind you, these guys are not social justice warriors. They are not taking to the streets with bullhorns and placards demanding popular opposition to the whole Babylonian system of government. That is not what these guys are doing. In fact, I would suggest to you that these these men have taken Jeremiah 29 to heart. They are seeking the welfare of the place where God has put them. They are using their gifts and their abilities to make Babylon better. But when push came to shove... They would not bow. Now let's talk about faithfulness here. Back in chapter 1, we saw that Daniel and these three men were faithful in in what seemed like a little thing. It was a little thing. They, They simply politely, courteously refused to eat the food from the king's table. And they worked out a way to do that 
They drew a line, as I said, because they wanted to be faithful. And they drew a line in this, this, on this little issue of not eating all of the king's food and, and all that that meant. I explained it a couple of weeks ago. But here's what I would suggest to you. Because they were faithful in the smaller things, they are now faithful in the much greater things. And there's a lesson for us here. Because faithfulness is a spiritual habit. It's a spiritual discipline that we develop over time in many, many, many small ways. That's how we become spiritually faithful. It takes years and and we learn to be faithful over the many small things. But when, and I would suggest to you it is coming for all of us sooner or later in one way or another, when we are eventually tested under great pressure, if we have been faithful in the little things, our faithfulness will show itself in a willingness to lose everything for the sake of gaining Jesus Christ. Think about it. Think about it with me for a second. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 1.21, this is an amazing statement, look it up, to die is what? Gain, right. Now, I would suggest to you that that was not some sort of empty theological slogan that we just put on our Facebook page. But I would suggest to you that the the Apostle Paul said that dying is gain because he had died every day in thousands of ways because that's exactly what he tells us in 1 Corinthians 15.31. I die every day. And he died in different ways every day, and that is how he knew. He knew that when death came knocking at the door, it was a door that opened into glory and joy inexpressible. So let me ask, when push comes to shove in your life, and it is coming, It might come at the hands of of an overreaching government. It might not. But when push comes to shove, what will we do? Will we bow down in order to avoid getting burnt? Or will we say with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Brothers and sisters, we must not succumb to the lie, and it is a lie very present in our culture. We must not succumb to the lie that we can bow down with our bodies in public, but somehow worship God privately in our hearts. The Bible knows nothing of that. Faith in Jesus Christ is personal, 
Don't make any mistake about that. Faith, true saving faith in Jesus Christ is personal, but it is never, never merely private. True faith, saving faith, must be fleshed out in our lives in public. It must be walked out, as I say with my kids all the time. We've got to walk out our faith in the real world. And we must not fear standing against the idols in our culture, no matter how vigorously and vehemently people in the government or in the culture may hold to them and seek to shove them down our throats. Two things we can learn from what these men told the king. I love these guys. First of all, they trusted in the power of God, undoubtedly. They trusted in the power of God. They knew that God had the power, that his hand was much more powerful than Nebuchadnezzar's hand, and he could pluck them out of his plan. He could deliver them from the fiery furnace. They knew that. That's important, that we trust in the power of God. But the second thing that we learn from them is even more important. They also trusted in the freedom of God. And this is a point, my friends, that we are less comfortable with. We must be a people who trust in the power of God, but we also have to learn to trust the freedom of God. What do I mean by that? Well, look at what they say. But, if not. God is powerful. He can save us. Your plans can be shut down in a second by God. He'll deliver. If we go in the fire, He'll deliver us. But if not, if not, we're not going to play ball with you. You can throw us in the fire even if we are consumed We will not worship and bow down. You see, because these men know that God is sovereign and He is free to do with them. He is free to do with us whatever He wills and wishes. Whatever He knows is best. Because He's wiser than we'll ever be. He knows us. He knows our beginning and our ending. He knows every step. He is working all things, past, present, future, out for our good and for His great glory. Me? I have a hard time seeing beyond the end of my nose. I can't remember... Well, actually, I do remember what I had for dinner last night. I can't tell you what I had for dinner two nights ago. There's no way of knowing what I'm eating tonight. Honey, what are we having? Uh, You know? (laughs) Don't get my hopes up. Here's the point. These guys know that God is God. God. He is the king of all earthly kings. He is the Lord of all earthly lords. He will do what he knows is best to bring about his glory through his people. Let me give you an example of this. You could look at Acts 12. Acts 12 is a very interesting chapter. James is put to the sword by Herod. Dead. In the same chapter, Peter is arrested, put in prison, an angel comes, unlocks the door, and leads him out to freedom. (laughs) What, did God love Peter more than James? Did James have less faith than Peter? No. 
God was working out His will and His way in His sovereign freedom. With James it was one thing. With Peter it was another. This is why comparing your life to anyone else is utterly futile. God is not working out your plan in His life and His plan in your life. Stop it. Trust His freedom. See, what matters most is not our deliverance, but our obedience. Not our security, but our worship. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Dale Davis writes, Faith obeys God's word. It doesn't try to manipulate God's hand. Faith is not required to plot God's course, but only to obey God's command. See, this is faith's finest hour. And this, I would suggest, is what I would call the miracle of faith. This is the miracle in chapter 3. This is the miracle of faith before we even get to the miracle of the furnace. Walter Luthi writes, that there are three men who do not worship in Nebuchadnezzar's totalitarian state is a miracle of God. That the three were not devoured by the fire is no greater miracle. Suppose the fiery furnace had consumed them. The real, the real miracle would have happened just the same. After 20 years of ministry... When somebody takes a stand, a costly stand for Jesus Christ, I, I, I honestly feel this more and more. It's like you're standing before a miracle. Let's not, let's not bow. I don't think we're, we're called to fight. We're not called to take to the streets. We're not called to be militant. We're not called to attack and complain. We're called to be faithful like these men. Look at the response. (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar's response in verses 19 and 20. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And the expression of his face changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Keep a furnace running. And he ordered some of the mighty men in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them in the burning fiery furnace. That brings us to the deliverer. After throwing the three men, binding them and throwing them in the furnace, look at verses 24 and 25. Here's what we read. Then, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. One moment he's furious, now he's astonished. And he rose up in haste. And he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Johnny Cash has a song called Fourth Man in the Fire. Check it out. The fourth man, the identity of the fourth man, it's not certain. Here's what scholars say. They say, It could be a Christophany, which is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. That's what some scholars say. 
others following, I think, what would make a better case given the whole book of Daniel. Um, Others suggest that the fourth man is an angel, an angel from the Lord. That's what Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 28, but I don't know if we can trust him. I don't actually think the specific identification of the fourth man is really that important. Because whoever he is, we know this, the fourth man is clearly a demonstration of God's presence with his people in a time of trial and crisis. That's for sure. See, God did not merely rescue his servants from the fire. He sent his personal emissary to pass through the fire with them. That's different completely. His presence with them ensured that death could not touch them. And in light of the New Testament, regardless of the specific identity of the fourth man, his presence there must make us think of Jesus. It must make us think of Jesus because he is Emmanuel. God with us. God with His people. He is the one who has pledged His life to never leave us or forsake us ever. He said, I will be with you always. I will walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death always. I will be present with you. Jesus entered the furnace of crucifixion absolutely alone in order to save us from the fiery furnace of hell and to bring us in to the kingdom of his God and Father to call us his own people called out of darkness transferred into the glorious kingdom of God's own beloved son this is our savior this is our deliverer this is the one that we will bow down to exclusively Now look at verses 26 and verse 27. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, uh, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their head was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed and no smell of fire had come upon them. What do we conclude? The Lord and the Lord alone is the great deliverer. Just consider the history. He delivered his people from their slavery in in Egypt. He delivered these men from the fiery furnace and the greatest deliverance of all as he he has delivered all who believe from the power, the enslaving power of Satan, sin, and death. What a deliverer. What a savior. Finally, we come to the decree. Daniel 3, <laughs> this is so funny. There's so mu- this is a very humorous chapter, actually. I wish we had more. T- we c- I, I had a whole section I couldn't preach on because it would just take too much time, but there's some laughs in this chapter. Uh, Look, when things are going bad, you have to cultivate a certain sense of humor. And in Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar 
issues a decree that everybody everywhere has to come and bow down and worship his golden image that he set up. And now in verses 28 to 30, here's what we read. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. He hasn't learned a thing. And their houses laid in ruins. Really friendly guy. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way, I'll say. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had witnessed the power of God, wouldn't you say? And I think he was suitably impressed. And so he issues this other decree that no one shall say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or I'm going to kill you. You see, he thinks, this is so often the way it works, people think that you can somehow control the kingdom of God, that you can dictate the terms upon which the kingdom of God will be established. That's not true. We can't. He couldn't. Perhaps the greatest example of this is found in the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of Luke in chapter 4, Jesus is tempted by Satan. Satan comes to Jesus because he thought he was in control and he thought that he could set the terms of the kingdom, just like Nebuchadnezzar. And in verses 5 to 8 of Luke 4, here's what we read. And the devil took him up, Jesus up, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to, them, said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. See, this is the, the temptation that... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego face. This is the temptation that Jesus faced. And this is the temptation that we face all the time. Will we worship and serve the Lord God alone on His terms? Or will we look for sort of an easier, more user-friendly route in the kingdom? Jesus Christ came into the world to defeat the works of Satan through His crucifixion and His resurrection. Here's what we learn. The cross always precedes the crown. It's the, that is true for Jesus. That is true for everyone who follows him. He said, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and die every day. And it is in that daily dying that we experience the power of the resurrection in our weakness and through our weakness. Paul says the treasure of the gospel is hidden in weak earthen vessels. He's describing us. We're not in control. That's an illusion. Repent of it. Come before God and trust Him for His power, but trust Him for His freedom to do what is right in your life. He knows you better than you'll ever know yourself. 
See, and the good news is we worship a God who comes into the fiery furnace. He, he comes into the trial. He comes into the setback. He comes into your suffering with you. He doesn't stand outside and wait for you. He meets you in it. He joins you in it. He has been tempted in every way as we are tempted when we face trial and pressure and trouble. He is tempted in every way, yet without sin, He stood firm, He stood fast, and we can stand with Him because He stands with us. This is the Savior that we must give our total allegiance to, our total devotion to, that we must bow down to and serve exclusively, even as we seek to to walk in this world, in this foreign land, in a way that earnestly and sincerely seeks the welfare of the place where He has put us. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.